Hello and welcome to Oh God What Now. I'm Doria Linsky. We did have a special guest booked, but unfortunately he's fallen ill, so it's just the Holy Trinity this week for a slightly shorter episode. Roz Taylor is editor at the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Hello. In health news, uh, one of the UK's biggest GP practice operators has been transferred to the US health insurance group with the ominous name Centene Corporation. Which is very, it's a very parallax view, as as are all these American healthcare providers. Um, is this as some campaigners are arguing privatisation by stealth? Something to be concerned about. It's a difficult one because uh, while the decision was taken in a very secretive way, which was not ideal, because the name of the US, this US company which owns the UK company which is running this, was not even mentioned at the meeting at which it was decided. And that is clearly not ideal. The question is whether it makes a practical difference. Uh, GPs are still regulated by the Care Quality Commission. They still have to provide healthcare that's free at the point of use. And the US company will be fully aware of that. You may kind of instinctively balk at it because we all have such problems with the way healthcare is organised and sold in the US. But if the safeguards are in place, then it shouldn't be problematic. I think we really need a wider discussion about how we feel about foreign companies being involved in UK healthcare and whether we're okay with that or not. Personally, I'm just about okay with it as long as the safeguards are strong enough. Alex Andreu is a man of many talents. You can often find him tweeting for Best for Britain. Hi, Alex. Hello. Our fave Michel Barnier has waved goodbye to his Brexit role, declaring (laughs) mission accomplished. What do you make of his legacy and, and his role in the Brexit process? How will he be uh, remembered? Um, I mean, he delivered the deal that he was asked to deliver. I think his brief was deficient. So I think the brief failed to really envisage what relationship the EU wanted with the UK in the future. It it all became very bitty and very of the moment. But um, I think his legacy, you know, will be slightly more intangible than, than that. Uh, he was always formal, polite. Um, he was well-dressed. He was a classy uh, act, well-prepared, in charge of every minutia of his brief. And I think in that way, he was a terrific advertisement for Brussels in this five-year tug of war. I keep recalling that photo of him and von der Leyen on one side with the EU flag behind them looking just supremely elegant and smiling confidently, and on the other side the UK flag with Johnson and Frost looking like two piles of laundry dropped off for a service wash. And I think it is possibly the negotiation's most enduring image and, and an image that says a lot, I think. Well, meanwhile, I suppose his, his old antagonists, the ERG and the DUP, are committed to scrapping <laughs> the Northern Ireland Protocol with the DUP stopping construction of post-Brexit border checkpoints. Are they going to get anywhere? Yes, so there was a little bit of development on that today, which is Wednesday. So just before the budget, there was Northern Ireland questions, and Brandon Lewis announced that supermarkets in Northern Ireland will get more time to adapt to the new trading rules. Now, if this is a unilateral action, something they haven't discussed with the EU, it may break the protocol slash agreement. So we will see if Brussels have a response. Um, I mean, what the DUP think is irrelevant, because Johnson made that quite clear by screwing them over with a withdrawal agreement. Uh, And I have a sneaky feeling that they may suffer losses in the next Stormont election just over a year away. The ERG is more interesting because 
like the CRG, the energy, and all the other RGs, they seem to me like sort of displacement activity for conservative backbenchers who are feeling unloved to, to keep themselves politically relevant, you know. So the answer is, it depends on how unloved they continue to feel. Ian Duncan Smith was appointed to review regulations, which is basically plopping one of the naughty children in front of the telly. So if you give people like Stephen Baker and Frank Mansoir equivalently meaningless but statusy positions, then the ERG suddenly consists of people like Peter Bone and Bill Cash and Desmond Swain and Marcus Fish, who are about as politically dangerous as a slow-moving custard. On this week's show, it's Budget Week. What has it told us about the sort of Chancellor that Rishi Sunak wants to be? And how does Britain's COVID recovery plan compare to the EU's? And there's a new Museum of Communist Terror on the cards, backed by Brexiters and right-wing culture warriors. What are they playing at, and how should we remember the crimes of Stalinism? Remember, if you like the podcast and you want to get our sought-after mugs, T-shirts, and other benefits, like exclusive video and audio of our live Zooms, then you can sign up to backers on Patreon. Search Patreon, oh God, what now, to find out more. First up, we're recording four hours after the budget, which was heavily briefed in advance, but still had a few surprises. We're going to talk about that and what it says about the kind of Chancellor Sunak wants to be. Alex, what stood out for you that perhaps was not uh, briefed to friendly newspapers in advance? A late 2022, early 2023 general election is what stood out uh, for me. If you look at the total policy decisions cost, as it were, that, that's always in the book. They sort of add the total spending on policy decision and the total tax and come up with a figure. You will see that it's basically a, a giveaway right up until 2022-23, and then it becomes a really quite harsh clawback from 23-24 onwards. Now, we know that scrapping of the Fixed Parliaments Act is due to be in the next Queen's speech, which I think is in May. And so I, I, I feel that would set the stage for an early election. You'd get basically Johnson riding high on the success of the vaccination program, Sunak still in giving away money to everyone mode, and they would go for another five years at that point. Um, well, in the short term, is there enough, do you think, help for workers, small businesses, hospitality, so on, and other people struggling financially due to the pandemic? I mean, there is a, there is a lot being offered, yeah. but I suppose it's, it's, it's sort of, is it enough and who's missing out? Well, it's more than it was. So in many ways, extending the business rates relief furlough scheme, all of that stuff was the headline of the budget. The furlough now includes some of the categories of self-employed individuals which we have been arguing for a long time via the Excluded UK campaign should be included. So so the furlough scheme is even slightly more generous than it was before. For me, what is striking is the total absence of the public sector from the equation. They are the people who have really gone above and beyond to get us out of the, the pandemic mess. They're not even mentioned in the budget, as far as I heard. And that, to me, seems very, very strange. And also, through the pandemic, 
one of the things we found out is that the social care system is really creaking. I mean, really falling apart. And so there was nothing on public sector workers uh, and there was nothing on the uh, on social care, which has been something that every conservative prime minister for the last 10 years have been saying they're going to sort out in the next budget. There was also a complete absence of help for businesses suffering the effects of Brexit. Um, so, I mean, to me, this equals zero lessons learned from the pandemic. There was a lot of stuff about extending 95% mortgages as long as you have a deposit, a super deduction for investment, free ports. So it seems to me like a, a, a budget, an investment budget for the cash rich. They're about to have a bonanza. The rest, I'm not so sure. Well, Rod, uh, talking of Brexit, it was, of course, uh, pre-COVID meant to be the starting pistol for deregulation in the small state. For obvious reasons, the opposite is happening. What signs of Brexit were there in the budget? Well, one of the big announcements that everyone got very excited about was free ports. And they sound great, don't they? Uh, the government wants to create 10 of them. Um, these Midlands, Felixstowe and Harwich, Humber, Liverpool City Region, Plymouth, Solent, Thames and Teesside. Actually, only three of those in the north, which uh, surprised me a little bit because I thought that the north was going to be a big centre for Freeports. Now, when you think about what they are, they are just fenced off zones around an airport or port that benefit from special customs terms. They're basically a way of avoiding having to levy big tariffs on things that are imported and then added to before they're sold in the UK market. So they're a form of deregulation, but only up to a point. Because the strange thing about it is that the UK decided post-Brexit not to levy big tariffs on imports anyway. So it won't make much difference in that sense to have a free port. Their real value is in attracting businesses that would otherwise be based elsewhere, but they like the tax perks that they'll get from being in a free port, so mm. they move. And that's really great that the free port is in an area that needs regeneration, but it's not so great for the area that the business has left. And it also can mean that an area is booming, but it doesn't have the local revenues that it needs to expand for all its infrastructure, like schools and roads and hospitals and so on. So they are a much more problematic measure than they might seem. And in terms of tackling the effects of Brexit, they're very inadequate, I think. They do not address the real the, the, the barriers to trade that Brexit has put in place. Ros, does Sinek give the impression of having to do things that he instinctively doesn't want to do? Let's look deep into his heart and the warring factions within his ventricles. <laughs> well, he said he has in the past when he had to do things like extending furlough for a much longer period than he wanted to. But he's kind of learned from that experience. And, he, and, and now he's deep in the rhetoric of doing whatever it takes to get Britain back on its feet and spending, you know, whatever it takes. Uh, today was today was very very depressing in terms of in, in terms of the budget. It was very depressing because we did, not only did we see no attempt at all to tax wealth. There was no hit on capital gains tax. There was no attempt to tax property in a different way or inheritance tax, anything like that. This is a great this is a great budget if you're you know a rich pensioner. And perhaps the fact that interest rates are so low 
is feeding into that decision. But nonetheless, considering the radical things that I think he could have had permission to do, he was very non-radical. And I suspect he very much disliked having to say he would raise corporation tax, which is going from 19 to 25% in 2023, which is a big increase, and freezing the income tax threshold, which sounds completely painless, but actually means that more people are dragged into higher tax bands as their wages rise. I suspect he hated doing that, but his plan will be to, in 2022, say, well, things are better than we expected, so I only need to increase corporation tax by, say, 23 or 22, rather than 25%, and sell it like that. And meanwhile, he can he can seem to be balancing the books better with the plans advertised in advance. So he was on, he was clearly on happier ground when he had his cut in fat for hospitality and his extension of the stamp duty holiday. Again, great news if you're a property, if you're a property owner or a would be property owner. Not so great if you, if you are outside that uh, class of person. But it was, yeah, I, I, it was a very depressing budget because it was really playing to the old Tory constituencies of people with a great deal of personal wealth and not doing anything very much for people who have really suffered during the pandemic. Because the problem that we've got here going forwards, where you, where you mentioned that obviously he wants to talk about balancing the books, is the idea... I suppose of whether you need to balance the books, because having obviously had to borrow vast amounts of money to get us through this crisis, you know, do you have to pay it back? Advocates of uh, modern monetary policy would say no, that's a, that's a fallacy. Um, are we in a situation where, unfortunately, we've got a chancellor who fully believes in the logic of austerity? He isn't completely wrong about that, because while it's the case that over time the economy grows, and so the debt gets less... The question hanging over everything is what will happen to interest rates? Because once interest rates go uh, go up, it becomes much more expensive to service your debt. Now, at the moment, as we know, they're extremely low. They may even go lower. But if inflation goes up, then the Bank of England may have to think about raising rates and then things will start looking a lot more pessimistic. So, the logic, I, I, you know, there is a there is a logic to to that argument, but at the moment it really doesn't apply very much. The question is, what happens in the future? A problem with that. I, I've been skimming the book just before we recorded. There's um, quite an ominous paragraph by the OBR where they say that they reckon their population in the UK is substantially smaller than official statistics suggest because of a significant number of foreign-born nationals returning home during the pandemic and lower levels of immigration because of Brexit. So they're saying unless most of these missing workers do indeed return or are replaced by other migrants after the pandemic, and these other words, the scarring impact from net outward migration may be rather larger than we previously assumed. Indeed, on a worst case basis, the population could be as much as 2% smaller. Now that impacts growth forecasts really directly. <laughs> And looking at the politics of it rather than the economics, given that it includes, it does include things like corporation tax rise, which I think is only 1% less uh, than the one in Labour's 2019 manifesto. Um, was it hard for Starmer to respond to? How, how do you think he did in his response? 
Uh, no, I don't think it was a, a, a hard budget to respond to because what he will do is stick to the philosophical difference. When you basically concentrate your recover plan on the idea of trickle-down economics, which is what Sunak is doing, when you say that if we just pump a shed load of cash to the people at the top, enough of it will trickle down to sort out the people at the bottom, then Starmer can adopt a radically philosophically different position, which says that, no, what we have found through the last 10 years of austerity, and especially during the pandemic, is that there are structural problems in the way our society works, and this is an ideal opportunity to start addressing those. And do you think any move towards austerity in the future will give Labour more of an opening than is currently available? When we're, I think we're at, when we're assessing what room Labour has to oppose here, we're obviously dealing with a Tory government that is spending far more than it wants to. So is that, is that, is that kind of line of attack going to become more obvious in two years' time? You see, the problem is that the government is spending far more just to tread water at the moment. Austerity is effectively still ongoing. So the cuts to local authorities have been biting for a decade. There are local authorities now, one of them under conservative control, warning that they're going to have to look at taking out services or rationing services which fall under the aegis of social care. When those things happen, while a chancellor is seen to be lavishing loads of cash around, it actually makes the position more difficult to defend because people start asking, well, he's giving all this cash to everyone. Where is it? Why are my local services worse? Why are there more potholes, you know, to to take that perennial British uh, obsession? You know, why, why can I not put my elderly parents into a decent care home? So, It's a double-edged sword, you know, because when you're seen to be giving loads of money, people expect some of it to get to them. (laughs) Yes, and I mean, austerity has not gone away. Public services, as Alex says, are already very weak, and we've seen no appetite in this budget for investing in things like social care or housing or any of the other things that have been cut back so much in the past decade. So the question is really, at the moment, which I don't think the government has yet grasped, do Britons want to continue to live in an emaciated state? Or are we potentially quite keen on an efficient NHS, Mm. for example, that's clearly capable of great things when the money is there, as the rapid vaccination programme shows? Or do we want to continue to struggle? Um, Ros, Sunak remains exceptionally popular uh, for a politician and the Tories are enjoying a significant poll bounce, which is, uh, I, I imagine, largely due to the vaccines. How long before things get a lot more difficult for both the government and Sunak in particular? I think a few months. There's going to be great, you know, great joy when the, hopefully, as the economy opens up again and people can do what they want to again. And then I think a sense of dissatisfaction will creep in because things changed very rapidly in very extraordinary ways in spring last year. And for some of the, some people, those changes were welcome. Things like working from home, things like the state supporting you rather than you losing your job in many cases, those were things that were welcome. For others, they were very, very unwelcome, but it showed the power of the state. And I think 
they have underestimated a the desire for change that will kick in once people have you know their freedoms back to use mm-hmm. a cliche and they have time to reflect on what government is capable of doing and what it might be doing if it showed any inclination to do so. Mm. Uh, Alex, I noticed that that Starmer brought up Sunak's role in blocking the circuit breaker lockdown in September, which I thought thought was wise because I think the thing that that doesn't really get through to the public and doesn't seem to have had any effects on Sunak's popularity is actually how bad his judgment has been in terms of lockdowns and in terms of... um, you know, turning back the virus. Yeah, I, I, I think what Ros said is really, really shrewd and smart. Uh, effectively, when the crisis subsides, a reflection will begin on what went wrong. And remember, even under the best scenario for vaccination, they still expect another 30,000 people to die. So we're looking at figures approaching sort of 160,000 by the end of the year. And I think in the in the harsh light of day, when you compare those to other similar European countries or Western countries, I think people will begin to think that this government has questions to answer. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Next up, are you now or have you ever been interested in the subject of communism? (laughs) There is a museum of communist terror in the works. Sounds interesting, as you find out, it's backed by the likes of Owen Patterson, Dan Hanan, Matt Ridley, Tim Montgomery. (laughs) I'm I'm probably Mr. Potato Head. (laughs) They've been buying up potential exhibits, including a KGB prison door, handcuffs, covert surveillance equipment and a Soviet execution thermometer for the museum, which is planned to open in London at some unspecified date. What are they up to? And is it bad news if the right lays claim to the tradition of anti-Stalinism? Ros, director James Bartholomew says that the vote-leave connection of those involved was a complete coincidence. Is it, though? Well, no. I mean, if you read Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism, you'll find that the political and media tactics that she talks about are not very far removed from those used by vote-leave. Um, so <laughs> they're very familiar with some of these. One lying so relentlessly, for example, that people grow weary and no longer have the energy to invest in trying to find out the lies or oppose them, or even, in the worst case, understand politics at all, basically grinding down the population. And I think we're all familiar with that happening in the years between 2016 and 2020, which is not to say that Tim Montgomery is a totalitarian, because that would be facetious. It's to say that history doesn't repeat itself in exactly the same way. And if this museum is intended to be some kind of warning, I'd argue that we need to interrogate the way we define totalitarianism and not assume that it will necessarily involve 
torture cells and gulags in the future. It may look very, very different. Alex, Bartholomew thinks ignorance about communism among young people is the fault of teachers, quote, who, if not Marxists themselves, are left wing and think that communism <laughs> may be an extension of what they think, which is the vaguest, like, well, no, maybe. <laughs> um, so it's sort of like, you know, today wokeness, tomorrow the gulag. Well, I do, I do want to unpack this. There is a complaint that they might have about lots of teachers being left wing, but that's not really what this complaint is. The complaint is that they are somehow tied to uh, you know, if you're centre left, then you're you're tied to socialism. If you're socialist, then you're tied to communism. If you're communist, <laughs> you're tied to you know the, the 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 great purge. Yes, it's by degrees, isn't it? But do you think we should talk? We should talk more about the Holodomor or the Cultural Revolution, and that these are, if we're talking sheer sort of numbers of dead, they are as you know the numbers are as large. It's really, of course, it's really plain. I mean, you know, there's no debate as far as I can see that Stalinism was a good thing going on anywhere, really anywhere. (laughs) Even among Stalinist groups, people say, yeah, he fucked it up. So what are we talking about here? What we're talking about here is a peculiarity of the British political system. The peculiarity is that there isn't really a far left. There isn't really a far left like there is, you know, in Greece there's a communist party, in France there's a communist party. Right. And they they command significant support. These parties keep the centre-left honest in a way. They don't allow it to be dragged too far towards the centre because they know that there's a danger of losing voters to the left of them. In the UK, that doesn't exist. So the whole system has shifted unchecked ever to the right. Okay. Now, you go to the US, for example, and you combine that lack of a proper far left with the communist under the bed terror of the Cold War, and what you get is a really potent argument with which you can dismiss an entire slice of politicians. So all all conservative politicians have to do to dismiss people like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders is to say he's a socialist because people associate that word with something really quite dark and scary. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to create the same sense in the UK, but it's in a really childish way, I have to say. Basically, what this is, is Owen Patterson, you know, when when people point out to him that if his government does something really unsavory and authoritarian, when people point out to him this the slippery slope that that can lead to, it is a perennial thing for the for the um, far right to say, what about Stalin? And the fact that they don't get the, the desired result by saying that, because most people <laughs> don't particularly associate the left in the UK with Stalinism, and quite rightly, is bugging them. So their response is to make you know, to mount a PR campaign to make communism scary and relevant again. 
scary in a relevant way again. That's what it seems like to me. Oh, let's start the museum. Ross, do you think there is a danger here that the, the, the sort of the very strong left-wing democratic socialist tradition of anti-Stalinism, which includes Orwell, includes the post-war Labour government, is sort of being neglected because, uh, you know, I often got this feeling, say, with, with Jordan Peterson, where he was like, well, I've read Solzhenitsyn and, you know, Stalinism appears to have been awful. And, and it's like, yes, Yes, I agree. <laughs> and I've read many, many left-wing people saying similar things. But it seems like there is a kind of land grab, you know, that, that so for the right to own, own this sort of moral revulsion against, you know, against these crimes. When, of course, uh, at the time, you, di- you did have large sections of the left um, opposing this. Maybe not large enough uh, in the 30s and 40s, but certainly later. Yeah, I mean, there was uh, there was definitely always opposition to it, and that grew and uh, with time, as you know. I mean, that would be a more nuanced take, and Daniel Hannan and Co. don't do nuance. <laughs> the thing it's probably worth mentioning, though, is that the strange thing about this is it almost seems to be fighting a battle that has been won. If you regard your opponents as being the Corbynite left, because there has there has been in the last 10, 15 years, an element of the left in uh, this country, which has mainly played out its fights in the pages of the London Review of Books and the Guardian comment pages, and therefore has extraordinarily little relevance to the lives of most ordinary people or indeed jet politics in general, but which has um, basically seized on people who have criticised Stalin uh, elements of Stalinism and things that people like Timothy Snyder is one and Applebaum to a certain extent another, and said that that is unhelpful, often implying that these are unfair slurs on Russia. And that was occasionally epitomised by our old friend Seamus Mill. Of course, he was very, very influential in the Corbyn leadership of the Labour Party. But that's in the past now. You know, that that's those people, you know, we don't even see it being played out in pages of The Guardian anymore. And it's really, really peripheral to discussions about the left. So it is a bit surprising in that context that they're still dragging it out and trying to make something of it. But but the past is what this is about. It is, as you say, Rose, about a battle that has been won. And I would argue it's about a, a larger battle that has been won. In many ways, the presence of the so- Soviet Union kept capitalism attractive. And the demise of the Soviet Union and the move of China to a, a weird mix of authoritarianism and capitalism means that there is nothing against which capitalism can measure itself any longer, um, which was a really useful thing yes. for neoliberal politicians to be able to say, do you want to end up like uh, communist Russia? That, over the decades, has lost its relevance and keeps losing its relevance. So they're trying to revive that in a weird attempt to basically create some renewed energy for the argument, left, bad, right, good. To end, I wanted to ask if there was a version of a museum uh, of, 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 of Stalinism, of the, of the kind of the worst excesses of communism, totalitarianism in general, that would work. Because I, I was thinking of there was a, a, an exhibition of Russian art at the Royal Academy a few years ago. 
And what's extremely powerful was that it starts with a lot of the art around the, the revolution, um, a lot of very, very exciting, radical, optimistic art. And then you would see on the little plaques next to them, next to each one, and they go, oh, right, yeah, like two years after this, uh, he killed himself. Uh, three years after this painting, uh, he fled to France. And right at the end of the exhibition, there was a very moving kind of room that you stepped into, like a black box, which remembered um, all the victims of Stalinism and many of these artists that were purged. And so you'd had this sort of whole journey through the the idealism of, of revolutionary Russia and, the, you know, the, the, the tyranny, the earlier Tsarist tyranny that it was throwing off and how that went wrong. And I came out with this real sense that nothing had been brushed over, but that it, that, that it was that it was complicated and there was a human tragedy that began with a huge sense of kind of, you know, human potential. And so I just wonder if there is a way that perhaps not using necessarily using KGB handcuffs, but a way of a way of commemorating this in the way, of course, that there are around the world, Holocaust museums, Holocaust memorials and so on. Yeah, I think it would be fascinating. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a political nerd in many ways. So uh, it, it, there are so many interesting ways of looking at why communism took hold, why it held any appeal as a political system, which nowadays people have a great deal of difficulty in understanding. I remember a few years ago, the British Museum had a sort of side exhibition, which it sometimes does in just a couple of rooms, not a big one, a very small one. And it was all about money. And they just basically had notes and coins uh, from different places and explaining their significance. And it taught me just the hugest amount about how different countries think about money Mm. and communist countries in particular. It was a tiny thing, but it did so much. But to put a few pieces of menacing hardware in a room, you know, that's got all the historical interest of the London dungeon, frankly. Yeah, if you want to recreate the experience of a few people locked in a filthy room being tortured, you know, I'm going to be terribly facetious here, but look at my kitchen in February 2021. You know, it's it's just it's just torture porn. <laughs> it's not helpful. We the ideas are far far more interesting than the looking at some scary equipment. Can I add something a little interesting from my own special interest, which is vinyl, as you know. So um, through collecting vinyl, much of much of which is from the uh, uh, old Soviet Union, because they produced a lot of it, uh, I found out that, you know, the, the nomenclatures of the people on the records as artist of merit, state artist, artist of the Soviet Union, etc., were effectively like civil service grades. So you you earned them the bigger your career got, and the way you earned them was by doing concerts in faraway places. So the further, the more you stayed and just did you know, cushy recitals in Moscow, the fewer points you got. But if you did a big tour of Siberia and sung to people there, then you accumulated loads of points and could, you know, graduate from being an artist of merit to being a state artist or whatever. And your status and your points basically dictated how many records you would make. And uh, uh, everyone could get the records with a plain cover 
on the rations, but you have to spend extra to get them with a sort of picture cover. I think, you know, something like that has taught me much more about what was going on about the system in the old Soviet Union than going into a room where Mark Francois rips up the, uh, you know, a copy of The Capital and Owen Patterson shows me the pliers that KGB officers used to pull teeth out. But that's the point. The art exhibition that you described, Dorian, is the creative lefty way of telling that story. What they're doing is the blah right-wing way, the practical way of telling the story. So they think that if they just put an array of torture implements and, you know, show loads of photos of how poor people were, you know, somehow that will have an emotional effect. And I don't think it will. And I don't think they'll do it, by the way. I don't think this museum will ever come into being. It, no, it does seem to be very far off in the in the future and... They're, buy, they're buying stuff up, but there didn't seem to be any sense of uh, of when and how this was going to happen. Yeah, it's going to end up in a sort of private sex dungeon, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, purge me, purge me. <laughs> We've almost reached the end of the show. I'm afraid there's no extra bit this week due to our last-minute cancellation, but there is always time for But Your Emails. This week, Emma Quinn says, information comes at us thick and fast, and it's difficult to keep track of all the horrific things this government does, which is why they seem to get away with so much. How can we counteract this avalanche of information slash news so that the really terrible things stand out? Well, I think, Emma, the answer is that you can't keep track of all the horrific things this government does, even if you subscribe to the government's news feed, which you can do, by the way, if you go to gov.uk and then you go to news, you can follow every single press release the government does. But the problem with that, of course, is that it will be spun in a way which makes the government look rather good. So what I would suggest you do is focus on the one thing, the one area that really interests you and really makes you passionate whether that's social care or schools or international aid or what, and, and follow that in detail and uh, find the people who know about it, who understand it and the uh, news outlets that are covering it and follow them and make sure that you, you're up to speed with that inside out. Because believe me, the task of following everything the government is doing is exhausting. And I wouldn't want to submit anybody to, to have to, uh, uh, to have to try and do it. I think that's really good advice. I think my solution would also include taking things offline um, because I think we've become so used to doing everything online that we think, oh, if I post a cutting tweet about this, um, surely everyone will see it. But not everyone sees it. Actually, only your narrow circle of followers tend to see it unless it's one of those rare occasions where something goes viral. So actually, if it's something that, you know, involves your local area, then it might be more effective to write to your local council or, you know, join the board of governors at your local school. Get involved basically at a local level about what's happening. So railing against, you know, local authority cuts to social care in the abstract may be more difficult and less effective 
than concentrating on what is happening to the five care homes closest to me and how can I help there and how can I make their plight better known. Yeah, I suppose I'd challenge the premise slightly, this sort of how can we counteract. I don't think it's our job, you know, it's the sort of idea that somehow we have the power to get this onto, uh, you know, the BBC homepage or whatever. It's like it is it is the Labour Party's job. It is journalists' job. But I think a lot of people are sort of internalist the idea that everybody is kind of like an activist and everybody is a media critic. Mm. And you should constantly be just going, well, why isn't this being covered by so-and-so? We must push this through. Let's get a hashtag going. And I think that that can actually, even though the motives are noble, I think that can actually lead to an enormous sense of sort of frustration and impotence and disillusionment. Because the point is that your, you know, your hashtag can only go so far. And so I suppose that you, you're you recommending practical stuff that you can do sort of, you know, more, more locally. But I think perhaps there is a, a, a kind of Twitter delusion that, that, that if we just try hard enough, that we can change the national narrative. Hmm. Um, and let's face it, la- the Labour Party itself, as any opposition party, struggles to change the narrative. It's like it's not, it's not on all of us. It's on all of us maybe to be aware, sure. but not sure. to... Not to guides the whole narrative yeah i mean at the same time there are plenty of example where uh, plenty of examples where actually online campaigns have made a big difference and and they have worked i guess it's it's about finding the right forum for everything and and twitter is the right forum for some things but it's not the right forum for everything i think the answer is just to just to, to get marcus rashford on it whatever whatever you're most concerned about um, get Marcus Rashford because he's the only man. Starmer can't do it. Johns can't do it. But I understand Emma's sentiment, which is that, you know, the, it seems to me that for the last couple of decades, people have discovered that if you just throw a pile of shit at people, then there is only limited bandwidth for what media decides to investigate and unpick and and that is happening a lot and finally f uh, this kind of calls back to something you did you said earlier alex ff size says would johnson gamble for five more years while still riding impossibly high in the opinion polls before the inevitable crash or is he a brownite presumably <laughs> meaning uh when brown decided not to call an early election Alex, you seem to think, you seem pretty convinced that he was going to call an early election and not wait to 2024. Well, I'm very convinced that he's given himself that option. Whether he goes for it or not will depend on how soft his polling might uh, start to look. We've discussed this before. I know that there is a, a sort of superficial boost to the polling, but the underlying statistics, how competent do you think is how how much do you trust the government and the economy how much do you trust the government on health all of that underlying stuff is really soft and going in the wrong direction how honest do you think he is all of that stuff is going in the wrong direction for johnson you know this is the high watermark for him through the vaccination campaign i heard someone saying the other day that through the vaccination campaign every individual will come in contact with the state in a very meaningful way, in a meaningful, life-saving way. 
it really doesn't get much better than that for someone who is in charge. They will get a big boost from this. Whether it lasts or not, I don't know, but they're they seem to be manoeuvring themselves to a position to call for an early election. That's my view. Rog, just to sort of unpack the premise of this question, um, it really seems to be suggesting not that they're going to call one right now, um, when obviously everybody's very happy about vaccines and, and, and Labour is sort of struggling um, to, to really to get noticed. You know, poor old Annalise Dodds keeps saying things that don't really get picked up. But that's not what we're talking about. This seems to be talking more about, say, 2022, 2023. Uh, so, you know, the the, pre- the the questioner seems to be assuming that, that the Tories will be in a much sort of better position than they would be in 2024. But, I mean, is there any reason to think, to sort of assume that? Or is actually everything... Everything that, that that sort of happens from 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 now on is just is just so up for grabs that there there isn't a reason to think that. I don't think there's any reason to think that it is up for grabs. It is impossible to say what will happen. I think it may be. I mean, you might you might want to consider how Johnson himself would like to go. Does he want to be defeated at the polls or does he want to be thrown out by his own party? <laughs> I think actually he would have a preference for the former. And we know what happens with conservative leaders who uh, the party loses faith in. Uh, they are very quickly and often cruelly defenestrated. And it may be that if he felt that his position was insecure, he would rather be beaten at the polls than be removed and replaced by somebody else. Mm. And that may play into the equation as well. Never underestimate the uh, influence of Boris Johnson's personality on British politics. Okay, so it's fair to say that you can't predict they'll be riding high. But it's also fair to say that if you look at that budget, that little budget table in the OBR book that I was talking about, which basically adds everything up, in 2021 to 2022, the government is basically spending £60 billion. So the money they spend on policy versus what they take on tax is minus £60 billion. If you look at 2024-25, it's plus 25 billion. So they are taking out in tax 25 billion more than they're putting in into policy areas. So it, it may be impossible to predict how high they'll be riding in 2022, but it's a reasonable prediction that it will be higher than it will be in 2023 or 2024. Do you see what I mean? Because they will be taking people's money. Well, we've come to the end, so thank you to Alex. Thank you. And Roz. Thank you. Now for our theme song, Demons is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to a few more very patient backers from the Lost Spreadsheet of Doom. Thanks so much from me to Rory Milnes, Angie Oakley, Sachin Sudera, Christopher Lucas, Kevin Lee and Scott. Thank you for your support and patience to Sandra Smith, David, Meg Thomas, Liz Graham, Rachel Brooks, Andy Hawker and Phil Smith. And finally, thanks for me to Chris Wallet, Eileen Kemp, Niall Joyce, James Snedden, Tatiana Ventura and Shane Common. Take care. We'll see you next week. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. 
The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Thank you.